Easter Sunday. I, I counted up the other day, and um, as best as I can ascertain, I have preached somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 30 Easter messages through the years. Um, started pastoring when I was 24 years old, pretty young. And uh, I started counting up in some of those years. We were at churches that had double services, so I started to think about all of that. And so somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 Easter Resurrection Sunday morning messages. Now, I've talked on the resurrection, I'm quite sure, more than, than those 30 times. But I was just thinking with regards to this particular day. And as I was preparing for this morning... I just got before the Lord and I said, Lord, is there not something new and fresh? Not that the resurrection on its own merit is not worthy to be told one more time. You can keep telling the story and the story carries its own authority. And people can have heard it a thousand times, but there'll be that one time that you'll hear the message and God will quicken it. He will enliven it to your mortal body, to your hearing. And you can be as deaf as pastor, but you'll hear it. And he will cause your heart to come alive. And, and, uh, and so I understand that the resurrection has that kind of, of power. But I also, I also like to be fresh. I like something insightful. And, and I know it's a familiar story, Jesus. As you will recall, this past week, we call it the Passion Week, entered into Jerusalem for the events concerning the last days of his earthly life. Um, He went through numerous teachings. It's amazing how much of the gospel actually is really an account of those last approximately seven days. It's a familiar story to most of you. You know that at one time he was immensely popular. Crowds with thousands of people literally following him all over the ancient Palestinian countryside. And the day came, however, because he challenged the way religion had suddenly uh, defined and, 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 and had become, it had become simply ritual, it had become a dead letter. There no longer was concerned with a relationship with God. All it was concerned about was that, that the enterprise of religion continued on. You know, the more I read the gospel, the more practical it becomes to today. For many people, the church is nothing more than an enterprise. It's, it's a religion. It's, it's, it's almost like a business. Now, there's a business portion to church because you have to receive offering. It, it takes money to pay light bills and air conditioning bills and, and, and salaries for pastors, which we appreciate. And, and I understand there's an appropriate place for business aspects. But, but the religion of Jesus' day, even though it was the covenantal religion that God himself had established, had turned into nothing more than an enterprise. It was a business. It was what you did. Even to this day, unfortunately, to be a Jew no longer really means to be in relationship with God covenantally, but it's cultural. I had a neighbor that was Jewish, and his Jewishness had no fervor. There was no passion. There was no zealousness. There was no relationship with God. I'm not saying that there aren't uh, orthodox, vital Jewish people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that for many, many Jewish people, it's their culture. And that's all that it is. Can I share for many people who call themselves Christian, it's your culture. And it's not a relationship. It's what you do. It's who you are. You've decided you're not Buddhist. You're not Muslim. You're not a Hindu. 
You do kind of have a theistic understanding of God, and so you just landed in the Christian slot. And while we appreciate you landing in the Christian slot, I've got good news for you that it's not just your culture, it's a relationship. A relationship. And so, so in America, it has become a familiar story. He, he died on a cross in order that we might not have to face uh, the satisfaction uh, concerning sin's judgment. And he spent three days in a grave and we gathered together this morning on the first day of the week. And the reason we gather on Sunday mornings now and not on the old Sabbath, which was Saturday, the reason we do this is because we celebrate a risen Lord. It's first day of the week, a risen Lord. And so we, we come and, and we know these things. And I was even watching this week, you know, it's amazing to me how when we get to these seasons that, that even uh, secular t- television will, will turn its attention to some of these themes. And I was watching the other morning, I believe it was Friday morning, I was watching one of the cable news networks. And on Good Friday, which I just thought was so absolutely crazy, on Good Friday, this, this Christian holiday that is celebrated by over a billion people in the world, they decided they were going to have on their show a recent author who wrote on doubt and divinity. In other words, he was writing on why the claims of the New Testament and the claims of Jesus and the gospel may not be true. I thought of all times to put that in. You couldn't wait just three, four days? No, you couldn't do it. And, and, and so I listened, and I listened to all the tired old arguments of why certain things probably aren't so. Do you know this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is probably the greatest challenged event in all of human history? There's probably no other singular event that has been more written about, more challenged, uh, more critically uh, reviewed, more skeptically grabbed hold of than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my message this morning has nothing to do with apologetics because sometimes I just think apologetics are just boring. Because truth of the matter is, is that I could tell you all the reasons why it's true, but until you take the leap into Jesus' arms, it will never be life to you. But I listened to all those same tired old arguments like it was somehow this new challenge to people of faith. And I wanted to go, no, it's not. No, it's not. The resurrection is the greatest attested to event in human history. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote concerning it. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote concerning the resurrection. Let me tell you, the Bible itself says that there weren't just one or two people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus just didn't show up to a few little old ladies on a street corner or some guy who had a bad set of glasses over there a block or so down the road. But the Bible says 500 plus people faced him face to face. 500, Paul says, and even as he writes to the Corinthians, he says, he says, some of them are still here. You can still go question some of them. If it's all a lie, it's the greatest perpetrated lie ever known to man. But truth be told, it's not a lie because who the original disciples were all killed in incredibly, in incredibly horrific ways. I'm not sure anyone would go to a death like they went to on the basis of a lie. There had to have been something that resonated in their heart. 
There had to have been a truth that they were so convinced of that it did not matter whether it was lions or whether it was fire or whether it was crucifixions or beheading, whatever it may be. All of them, all of them stood and retained their testimony. They had seen the risen Lord. So we come here with a great foundation. We come here with a great sense of confidence that our Lord is alive and well. But what does that mean practically? What does that mean as we begin to apply it into our life? I, I just want to read something to you. I'm going to give you, I think, more than a sermon, probably what I would call a devotional. But I believe if you'll have ears to hear and you'll listen to what I share with you today, I, I, I believe something can happen that can literally change your life. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, let me read you some words Matthew's Gospel 27. I'm going to leap over to Mark here in just a minute. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57. Listen to these words. It says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone. I'm going to zero in on that stone. But I want you just to see it. If you didn't bring your Bibles, you can see it on the screen overhead. That there was this large stone. Everyone say large stone. And it didn't say kind of a medium stone. It didn't say sort of a light stone. Stone, set a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, verse 62, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he, meaning Jesus, was alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it as secure as you know how. How many of you realize that if you were a Jewish leader and you were that concerned about Jesus being stolen, and what you consider to be a lie being perpetrated, you'd make sure that thing was secure. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, Mark 16, I'm going to read to you now, I think the best passage concerning the resurrection morning, keeping what I've just read to you in mind. Now, listen. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up and saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was, what kind of stone was it? Oh, very large, very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. 
But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him, as he said to you. And I want to share just a moment or two what I've entitled this morning. Don't let a stone stop you. Don't let a stone stop you. Now today, some 2,000 years later, we understand some things about the crucifixion and the resurrection that the disciples of Jesus' time had not yet fully processed. We understand, at least if you've hung around church or you've been taught in any measure, we tend to understand fairly you know, fairly widespread, that God's purpose for the cross and for the resurrection was for substitution. He he took our place, Jesus did, in order that we might not bear the penalty of of sin's wrath and God's wrath upon it. Uh, He became the ransom that, that took us out of the devil's grip. He was the satisfaction of justice. He was the atonement. He was the lamb slain once and for all. No longer would we have to bring the blood of bulls and goats in order to find relationship and oneness with the holy God. But Jesus became the one because He became the substitute for us, took upon all of that, and and in turn we took upon His righteousness. And then through the resurrection, we've been given newness of life, God life. Now we also know to some degree that Satan had a purpose in all of that. You know, Satan is deceived. He's the father of lies and And he literally believed that as Jesus was going through this Passion Week, as the Lord was facing uh, the flogging, uh, the the crown of thorns, as he faced the cross, the spear into the side, Satan saw all of that as well as his demons and their deceived thinking thought that they had won. That somehow or another they had stopped redemption. And that through all of this, God's plan had been undermined. So... So hopefully you can understand and appreciate how, how hard it must have been for the disciples of this time period to sort all of this out. We've had 2,000 years to sort these things out. But they had just a few hours. And there in a few hours, there were all sorts of emotions that were going through them. Here we are 2,000 years later, and, and it's interesting, there are still some people who haven't sorted it all out. It's true that the disciples had heard and they'd seen many things firsthand. But at this moment, all the teaching that Jesus had ever given to them, all the instruction, all the interesting parables, the life's lessons, all of that seemed irreconcilable to them because they'd seen in horrific fashion what had just taken place to their Lord. And now the practicality of where they were to go from here. Where do you go from here? Now that you've seen all that had taken place, all they could see was a closed tomb. And and there was a big question that was in front of them with regards to this closed tomb. And it seems to be epitomized in the picture of the stone. The stone. There was this large stone that they rolled in front of Jesus' tomb. Now let me give you just a little background on the stone. The tomb that Jesus was laid in, the scripture tells us, came from a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a disciple of Jesus. It was a borrowed tomb. 
And it gives us a picture of sorts as to how rich people would have been buried in that particular day. Jesus was not rich. I don't know what would have happened to the Lord had it not been for Joseph stepping in. I'm quite sure that was providential. But you could literally picture that ancient tomb as sort of a a mausoleum. The stone in front of it was to keep thieves from stealing bodies or other items that might have been placed in the tomb. In this instance, not, no, uh, not only was it used in order to seal up the place where Jesus was going to be, but the perpetrators of the crucifixion wanted to be sure that nobody could get his body, nobody could steal it in the middle of the night, nobody could somehow apprehend it and then disseminate a lie somehow that he was raised from the dead. They wanted no ability for Jesus to be taken away, to be turned into a relic, and to somehow uh, continue that which he had done while he was alive here on the earth. And so the Bible tells us that this was a large stone. In the original language, I can tell you just by virtue of the words they used, it was a stone so big that it would have taken multiple arms and hands, men, in order to even begin to move this thing. In fact, many believe that the stone was put on a, on a grade. And so then even to, to roll it up on a grave would have made it all that much more difficult in order for that to happen. And so a large stone, and the scripture tells us that the Jews came to Pilate and said, listen, even as big a stone as it is, and even as hard as this would be, help us to seal it. And so sealing it literally meant that somebody would go and give it a proper inspection. It was like a tomb inspection. And they would seal it after inspecting it. And at the end of it, they would make the the decree or they would give it the stamp of approval that this was a sealed tomb. It could not be open and uh, it was guarded as well. And so we see a picture of a stone that's going nowhere. And the whole thing, if you can imagine being a first century disciple, the whole thing epitomized in their sight what they were thinking in their hearts. It's over. It's the final chapter. The stone represents it being closed off. It's the epilogue to our three-year journey. It didn't end like we thought it would end. This isn't what we signed up for. It epitomized everything that was going through their minds. There was this sense of failure. There was a sense of disappointment. I don't know about you, but there was probably anger. There was a sense of injustice. There was a sense of unfairness, confusion, bitterness, blaming, Second-guessing. Come on, is that not the normal human response to moments like these when you see something you had invested your whole life in suddenly fall apart? Would it not be natural to begin to say, if only? Would it not be natural to say, what if? Maybe if we could have just moved that donkey to another direction than Jerusalem seven days ago. What if, what if, what if we just decided to spend more time in Nazareth or Capernaum? What if, what if we just didn't do like we ended up doing? What if, if only? And I started just to think about these early disciples. I mean, they're human beings. I'll share this with you. None of them glowed in the dark. We tend to have this feeling that like those early disciples may have walked about four or five, six inches off the ground and And they glowed in the dark and they were just these superhuman people. I beg to differ. Peter was cussing at the crucifixion. Sounds pretty human to me. And these 
very human disciples are going through some very natural processes. And I started to think, as those disciples watched this whole thing unfold, and, and I just started to, to just imagine what that stone must have meant to those disciples. The stone. They'd look at the stone and they would say to themselves, all of our hopes have evaporated. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one that was going to ultimately liberate even the land. Some of us thought that he was even going to be an earthly king. And all of that's evaporated. We had invested our dreams into this man. He had mentioned so many promises as to what the kingdom would look like and as to what we could do within the kingdom. And all of this has been crushed. He's no longer around. The tomb's been, been, been sealed. It's the final notice of a failed vision. Even if they could have rallied the crowds, it was too late. There was no bringing back what's been lost. Jesus was literally just pieces of flesh hanging on a bone. Nothing on earth could overturn what they just witnessed. There wasn't enough manpower, not enough brain power. There wasn't enough passion. They, they couldn't run through the streets and sort of whoop up the crowd again to get things to change. All of it's been done and the future is now gone. And it's all represented in that stone that's been sealed against the tomb. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt sort of like that? Have you ever faced a moment when even the most optimistic amongst us look at a situation that's in front of us and we have to say it doesn't get any more dead than this? Everything that you had pinned your hopes on is gone. It's not just that there's this big stone in front of you, but all the experts in death have inspected your promise and they've even declared to you it's gone. It's impossible to recover. There's more than enough people ready to get around you and look at you and say, it's done, it's over, it's crushed, it's evaporated, it's died, let it go. Has anyone but me ever been there? I've been there. In fact, I've been there a time or two in my life. In fact, I believe every human being faces moments a lot like those early disciples faced. I remember when, when I just came in contact with Jesus and, and the first moments when I was 18 years old and I received Jesus into my life and it was such an incredible transforming experience and, and all of a sudden my heart was filled with love and I wanted to serve Him and those things that I had been doing, I no longer wanted to do and, and, and everything about me was changing and all of a sudden the friends of a lifetime were leaving me. I mean, every friend that I'd gone to high school with, every friend that'd been with me through thick and thin, everybody that was important to me, including family members, just left me. I mean, all I was doing was following Jesus, and all of a sudden, all my friends and family were gone. I'm telling you, there was a moment, it just seemed like it wasn't worth it. I remember when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and we were in a denominational setting, and... And I remember that that wouldn't fit within that particular denomination. And, and when we had to make the transitions, it was interesting that they took everything that I had. They took, they took my housing. They took my retirement. They, 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 they took my last paycheck. It wasn't a friendly deal, man. I mean, I lost everything. I've lost a church that I've invested my life into. 
Tracy and I, I'm going to mention this in a few moments. We had a prophesied baby at one time and, and we lost a baby. We've all lost people that have been in our life. We poured our life into. I mean, there have been moments that it seems like we've given ourselves to something and all of a sudden it's gone. It's over. The stone's been rolled in front of it. People are just declaring it to be done. Has anyone here ever experienced loss that you would declare of that magnitude? I mean, you would say, well, maybe it doesn't fit there. It doesn't matter if it's your loss, you feel it. It's the kind of loss that takes your breath away. Your heart literally aches in disappointment. It wasn't supposed to end this way. This was not the script that I had written on this situation. This loss is of another magnitude because, because it can't be massaged and just made better. You just can't say maybe a sorry and it's put back together. You can't finesse it. You can't manipulate it. You can't recover from it. It's gone. It's, it's, it's impossible to retrieve. You just can't go to marble slab and get you an ice cream cone and it makes it better. You can't go get your, your, your fried chicken and your macaroni and cheese and eat your comfort food and you just feel better. It's as if somebody has punched you in the gut. There are some of you here today, you are widowed. Some of you are divorced. I suspect you know what I'm talking about. You lose somebody that's important to you. And it feels like someone just punched you in the stomach and you can't catch your breath and your heart aches so bad. It's, it's like it's breaking inside of you and you say to yourself, can I survive this? Will I recover? Will I love again? Some of you, you've invested decades into an important career or a job. And because of the way the economy has been working, you've lost an important job that you thought you'd always have. And maybe there was pension associated with it and that got taken away from you. And all of a sudden you're looking at a, at a future which seems very insecure. And it's as if someone just punched you and took the air right out of you. Some of you in this room have been betrayed. You trusted somebody. You, you, you invested them with information or maybe with feelings or emotion. You trusted them with something very important in your life and all of a sudden they used it and turned on you and, and it's as if you've just been hit, forsaken people. I could go down the list of all the things in people's lives that, that were there and that you pinned your hopes on and then all of a sudden they were taken away. You've got to understand these disciples were invested. They were fully invested in the Jesus thing. They left it all. To follow him. You got to understand these were business owners. These were, these were people moving up in their careers. They dropped it all. They dropped their nets to follow him. I mean, you don't get any more invested than leaving your businesses and leaving your families and leaving your children and leaving all the things that are desperately important to you. They bought into the vision big time. They gave everything they had. They, just, they didn't write off a check that, you know, it kept them from going out to eat for a month. I mean, they were fully invested. Everything they had was poured into this Jesus person, this Jesus event. I can only imagine the feelings that they must have had at that particular moment when they saw the stone rolled and sealed. I don't know, would you have felt conned? Would you have felt scammed? Would you have felt wounded? Would you have felt hurt? Disappointed? 
Maybe you would have felt all of those things. You gave up everything, but it didn't work out. So now this stone has become very personalized, hopefully, to all of us. And I want you to begin to understand the dynamics of that unusual Sunday morning. They were disappointed. They were, they were absolutely heartbroken. Think of that moment now. I've tried to illustrate it, but think of that moment. Bring it back up again of your greatest heart wound, your greatest heartache. Imagine that's how they felt. Now it comes Sunday morning. It's interesting that as I read you out of Mark's gospel, and guys, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're just going to go with what the text tells us. The men were nowhere in sight. Now, I'm, I'm a guy, and that makes sense to me. Because if anything can be said about the men, it's that they can sum things up pretty quickly. They get what's going on. You see, men, I guess it's just because of the gender. We, we, we see, we measure, we weigh, we evaluate, and it's over. I mean, they, they summed it all up. It didn't take long. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't still hurt and there wouldn't woundedness. But when you see what you've just seen, it doesn't take long to get that this thing's done. It's complete. It's over. But what we see here is the women. Oh, the women. Thank God for the ladies. Amen. Yeah. Ladies, that was your moment right there. Now, say what you want, guys. Listen to me. Say what you want. The women, they weren't going to let a stone stop them. You can almost see how a mom would be exactly like this with her son. I can almost hear Mary saying, it's my son. I gave birth to him. I was the one in that manger. Didn't have a room. No room at the inn. Joseph wouldn't leave when I told him to. Wouldn't ask directions when we were lost on the way there. So therefore, we didn't get a room. It's my son. I don't care if there's a battalion of Roman soldiers at the tomb. This is my son. No battalion of soldiers is going to stop me. He may be dead, but this thing's going to end right. If it's over, it's over. But I'm going to do, I'm, I'm a mom, and I'm going to do the finishing touches. I could hear a mom say that. I wouldn't want to have been the leader of that Roman battalion to stand between Mary and anointing her son with spices. You don't, you don't do that to a mom, especially in the state I suspect Mary was in. It's fascinating to me. In fact, as they're walking along, they're discussing the size of the stone. Isn't that interesting? They weren't discussing the number of guards. They were discussing the size of the stone. It's, it's almost as if these three women are saying, turn me loose on the guards. The guards don't, the guards don't bother me. It's the stone that's bothering me. And so they're having this discussion. Who shall roll away the stone? They did not know, listen to me, they did not know how the stone was going to be moved. They had no plan to move it. They had lots of questions about how it could be moved. But in the final analysis, 
They weren't going to let a stone stop them. And because of that, they experienced, they were the first to experience a miracle. I want to just stop here and ask you a question. What stone is stopping you from a miracle? What's killed your dream? What stands as an obstacle to your future? What has crushed your promise? What is so large and immovable that's in front of you that you've stamped impossible on it? I know this too. I know that some of you have self-proclaimed experts around you who have told you that the dream's over, the future's gone, there's no way, no how what you had hoped could ever take place. Give it up, let it go. Go on to the next thing. But the word of the Lord, I felt like as I was preparing for this morning, I believe to all of us is this. It's time we quit letting stones stop us. Don't let a stone stop you. You say, well, pastor, but how does, how does that work? How do you do that? It hurts. You don't understand. You don't understand what I faced. You don't understand the trauma. You don't understand the woundedness. You don't understand the betrayal. You don't understand what people have done. You don't understand how invested I was in this. You don't understand the money I had in it. You don't understand the time I had in it. You don't understand the, 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 the thoughts I had in it, the feelings I had in it. Pastor, you don't get, you have no idea. Let me tell you something. I understand what all these people faced, at least at some level. And they got to the place, the ladies did first, where they said, I'm not letting a stone stop me. How do we do this? Well, I think they demonstrate three qualities that I just want to leave with you this morning that I think will help us get to a miracle. Number one, they demonstrated a complete obedience to what was before them. They demonstrated a complete obedience to what was before them. They were coming, albeit to complete a burial. I can't say that they were filled with great expectation. I, I'm not going to somehow inflict upon the account something that's not there. I, I don't know that they had any expectation. They were coming to finish what they perceived to be all done. But what distinguished them from the others were that despite their hurt, and despite their disappointment, and despite the feelings that they had with this whole event, they were going to be obedient to the end. Miracles are not linked to how you feel. They're linked to how you obey. If you're waiting for God to move because you feel right, you'll be waiting a long time. God isn't working according to your feelings. He's looking at your obedience, your faith. That's faith in action, is obedience. I mean, how many people backslide and they fall into rebellion because something didn't turn out like they'd hoped? I have been pastoring now for, uh, what, 27 years. And I can tell you in 27 years of working with people, I'm always amazed at how when everything's going good, Jesus is Lord. But the minute it's not working out so well, it's amazing how people begin to slide away. Things didn't turn out like they had hoped. 
I thought Jesus was to make things all together right. I thought Jesus would fix this. I thought Jesus would come through. Listen, I can't answer every question you may have faced. We can dissect it. We can analyze it. We can look at it. I might have a little uh, insight to throw your direction, but here's the key. The key is no matter what's punched you in the stomach, you've got to get up and keep being obedient. The minute God doesn't do like you think He should, you quit serving Him. The minute you don't get what you think you deserve, you give up. These ladies, they weren't even working out of great expectation. They were just fulfilling what was in front of them to do. They were just being obedient and they refused to let a stone stop them. I'll be obedient. That's Mary. I'm going to be obedient. So I'm just I'm going to finish this thing. Whether we get the stone moved or not, we're going there. You see, they didn't, they didn't have to have a committee meeting beforehand to figure out how we're going to leverage the stone out of the way. Let's, let's get everybody together and let's just strategize. Let's have a stone strategy meeting here. You know, there are times that there's no strategy meeting for you. There are times, listen to me, there are times some of you have been counseled umpteen hundred thousand hours over this stone that's in front of you, the wound, the hurt, the trauma. That's, that's not to minimize what you faced, but one more hour of strategic counseling isn't going to give you a miracle. You need to arise and get back to your obedience. And when you get back to your obedience, even when not every question is answered, God, well, I'm telling you, he's the master of rolling away stone. Number two, they had a determination to confront their disappointment. They had a determination to confront their disappointment. I'm just sharing with you what it was in these women's lives that brought them to the place that they were the first to experience a miracle. I admire these women because in the face of the greatest disappointment imaginable, they decided to face it rather than run from it. You understand, I don't know where the men were, guys. I'm sorry. The men should have sucked it up and been courageous, but they were scattered. These ladies decided that rather than run, we're going to face it. I told you that I would share with you the story years ago. We had been uh, we had been prophesied over that we would have a third child. We had our two older boys, and for me, of course, I had sort of closed off that happening. I decided, you know, I was having enough challenge feeding two boys. I didn't need a third one. I don't know. It just had never come into my mind. And uh, Trace went off to a women's retreat and there at a women's retreat she had received a prophetic word that we would have a baby and that baby would be a girl now for those of you that know me you already know the end of the story the end of the story is sitting on the front row that some 16 years ago almost Kaylin came into our life and can I just say this I remember as I was going through all of that I couldn't imagine another child in our household and I just want you to know Kaylin I couldn't imagine life without you now I just want you to know that but you got to know the story behind that. The story behind that was, you know, I went through all the, the stuff that a person goes through when they're working out issues like this. And, I, you know, you can say, you're a pastor. You're a pastor. You're supposed to be spiritual. You, hey, let me tell you something. Being pastor and being spiritual doesn't send them to college. I mean, it doesn't. 
Who's paying for the diapers? Who's getting up in the middle of the night? Yeah, not me. That's true. I was better. I was better third time. I was better third time. First two, I was lousy. But you got to understand, we were we were on staff at a, at a at a mega church. And so when this happened, of course, everybody was at a women's retreat. Everybody knew about it. I mean, everybody in the church was. <laughs> this this sounds indelicate, but it's like everybody's involved in this pregnancy. <clears throat> And, uh, and so, lo and behold, the day came when Tracy uh, became pregnant. And everybody was excited, of course. We were excited. But all of a sudden, in the midst of that pregnancy, there was a miscarriage. Our lives have been, up to that point, ostensibly a long line of, of unchallenged, almost, successes or favor. But... There have been moments since that time to this time that God has taken us through a series of things that have caused us to learn the weighty and the deep and the important things of God. And when you lose a baby, now if you've never lost a baby, um, don't even pretend to understand. I will say up front, there are some of you who have lost loved ones in certain ways, and I can sympathize with you and I do, but that doesn't mean I can in any way, I totally understand what you've gone through. And I recognize that. And all I, I, can, I can cry with you. I can hug you. It doesn't mean I always understand. And I'm just telling you, if you've never lost a baby that not only have you invested hope into, but, but God was supposed to be involved in this. God spoke this word. God did this thing. I, I mean, hear me. It's like when God gave you the job. God gave you the spouse. God gave you this person. God gave you this moment. God, God's involved in this, and now all of a sudden it's gone. And it's easy as a human being to suddenly go, God, what are you doing? Don't you, you are on the line for this one. And everybody's looking at you. And now you're at the moment, as all these thousands of eyes are looking at you, you ask yourself, what am I going to do here? Am, am I going to just collapse? And am I going to just crumble? And am I just going to curse God? And am I going to walk away from it all? And am I going to backslide? Because I had a word and God didn't come through. What do you do? You arise. Confront your disappointment. Were we disappointed? Sure, we were disappointed. But the truth of the matter is, is that as we work through that disappointment and as heart-wrenching as it was, and I'll just share this with you, God took me through a personal process of dealing with my self-centeredness and my selfishness. If that hadn't happened, I'm not even sure God could have touched me at that particular level. But if I would have maintained my selfishness and self-centeredness, I don't know where we would have been today. But the truth of the matter is, we arose and confronted a disappointment. Yes, it happens. Yes, it's not fair. Yes, it doesn't seem right. Yes, we hadn't planned for this to happen. But can I tell you this? If we would have just stopped there and just sat in our pity, we would have missed the miracle of Kaylin Rama coming into our life. Some of you are grieving right now over past relationships. You're grieving over a past injustice. 
You've got some past hurt. You've got some past offense. And maybe, maybe you've got a legitimate right to your feelings. Maybe, maybe you have every earthly reason to feel disappointed. Why don't you set up a time with me and we'll both bring our disappointment notebooks. And we'll just open them both up and we'll read to each other all of our disappointments that we've experienced through the years. Because I've got a few too. But the truth of the matter is, you need to confront it and begin to believe for miracles again. And no matter how big the disappointment is, you got to say, I'm not letting a stone stop me. I'm not letting it stop me. I'm not letting it stop me. Number three, they decided not to live in their fears. These ladies were going to a place guarded by unsympathetic Roman soldiers. There would be no compassion there. There would be no empathy there. These men were to be feared. And add on top of that, it was dangerous to be associated with Jesus. No one would have questioned their prudence on avoiding the tomb on that particular day. Yet is it not interesting, these women arose. They're the courageous ones in the story. They arose and they faced their fears. The greatest single dream killer for most people is fear. And you know what my greatest fear is? Let me just share this with you. My singular greatest fear, just transparent moment, that I have that I continually face in my life, my greatest fear is the fear of being disappointed again. Disappointment's a biggie in my life. And, and so what happens is, is, is you develop ways to navigate it. I'm not saying they're godly. You just develop internal ways. For me, I began to develop a, 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 a corrupt, really, life philosophy that said, if I just don't expect anything anymore, I'll never be disappointed. If I just don't expect people to do right, well, then, you know, if they ever do right, I'll be happily surprised. But I won't expect it. I won't expect certain things. And if you just don't expect anything anymore, how can you be disappointed? But the problem is, if you never face that fear, you'll never see a miracle either. Because you see, miracles really are linked to expectation and belief and faith. For some of you, you have a fear of failure. The reason you don't arise and go after it again is because you're afraid one more time you're going to fail. Can I just share this with you? You may fail two, three, four hundred times, but all it will take is one success. All it will take is one miracle for God to make the two hundred times fade away. Some of you are fearful of rejection. You're afraid to go forward in anything because you fear that you'll be rejected again. You have fears of misunderstanding. Some of you have fears of just looking silly. Fears, fears consume consume our life and it keeps us right where we are. It was fears that kept the men wherever they were huddled in some, you know, corner room somewhere. They're just, they were just scattered. It was their fears that kept them at that place. But yet it was the women who had the ability at that point to arise and go to a tomb. And it was there they experienced. Can you imagine being the first one to experience a miracle? Now, I'll say this that those men eventually experienced the miracle too. But the sad part of the story is, is that they had to experience after a few others had it. Why won't we ever arise and go after what others refuse to go after? You got to face your fear. 
face your fear. They, they had reached the place where they said, we're not going to let a stone stop us. If you'll do what these women did, you'll begin to see miracles again manifest in your life. I'm going to read you something that I'd never seen. Well, I, obviously, I've read the Bible more times than I can count, but I'd never, I'd never caught it like I caught it this week. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, I'm going to read to you what Matthew wrote. Guys, don't post it yet. Don't post that until I start reading it. I don't want them to cheat. In Matthew 28, I read to you Mark's account, Mark's Gospel. I'm going to end with this. Matthew 28. It just kind of caught me, and I just started to grin when I read it. It says in Matthew 28, verse 1, you can go ahead and post it, guys. Matthew 28, 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Now, listen to this. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. See, I heard you grin, too. Is that not remarkable? That an angel showed up. One angel moved the stone. And then he got done moving it. And he just hopped up on it and sat on it. Right now, there's an angel sitting on top of a stone that's in front of you. You'll never see him move it. You'll never experience a miracle. You'll never, you'll never know the unmitigated joy that will come to your life of seeing that angel move what was once your greatest question. How many angels have we stood up because we let a stone stop us? How many angels have we let hanging for an appointment because we've allowed some disappointment, some fear, some hurt, some wound, some trauma, some injustice, some unfairness? How many angels are sitting on stones right now waiting for you to show up? And all it takes is you just arising. You, 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 listen to me one more time. You don't have every answer. I don't either. You, you, you don't have all the pieces fitting together yet. Just let it go. Let that part of it go. And just believe again for a miracle. God still rolls away stones. And Jesus, listen to me, Jesus became the first fruit of many. The first fruit of many. He became, he became the prototype stone roller. So that you and I could experience that joy that they experienced by moving in the midst of heartache and hurt and woundedness and unfairness and all the things that you can list in your notebook. You just, you just continue to move through until you reach the place and you say, who, who can move these things away? Who can change these things that have happened in my life? Who can make a difference in this? I don't know. I don't get how all this is going to work. And the Lord is just saying, just come Come to, come to an empty tomb. Come and see a resurrected Christ. 
and you can forever be different. Those ladies, I'll assure you, they were never the same. Stand with me, will you please?